Government and industry are both still dealing with the fallout from the Log4j software vulnerability. Both sides say the critical bug helped demonstrate, though, the promise of a new public-private partnership. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, it has been, what, two months since Log4j, this whole problem emerged. Where do things stand now with the response? Organizations are still tracking down instances of Log4j and whether they have that vulnerable software library in their environment or network. But as the dust has settled a little bit, officials are now saying that their rapid response back in December was successful in large part because of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, or JCDC. So the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency established JCDC last August. Congress wanted CISA to set up a joint cyber planning office of sorts and directed them to in legislation. And the JCDC is just that. It's where government agencies and private companies can come together to share information about cyber threats. So when Log4j emerged in December, CISA officials quickly convened a call with companies through the JCDC to share information about what they were all seeing. And CISA used that information to pull together a catalog of products with vulnerable Log4j code and and share information about threats that were attacking Log4j products. Kirsten Tote, CISA's chief of staff, spoke at a quarterly update hosted by the Cypher Brief this week, and she says the experience of responding to Log4j through the JCDC has helped kind of show that maybe public-private partnerships can work when it comes to cybersecurity. We've been around long enough to know that public-private partnership doesn't have a lot of substance if there's, if it's not actionable. So that's why one of the key pieces to what we're doing at CISA is this operational collaboration. And that's really what this Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative was launched to do, to really operate collaboration between industry and government. And Log4j was the first real you know, front and center example of what that looks like and how we can activate it. So that's what CISA says. What about the private sector? Well, so far, they're actually saying the JCDC is also working well. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee held a hearing this week about Log4j, and they heard from some private sector representatives. One of them is Cisco, a major global supplier, of course, of networking hardware software. They would have been impacted by Log4j. And during the hearing, Brad Arkin, Chief Security and Trust Officer at Cisco, He said the JCDC partnership provided some key information about how the Log4j vulnerability was being exploited. The key thing for us, when there's an infinite number of things you could be working on, how do you prioritize your efforts to where the bad guys are actually exercising and preparing to do bad things to your environment? And so the information that we got through JCDC helped us to understand the techniques and attacks that were being observed in the real world so that we could then marshal our resources in defense of that. That's Brad Arkin from Cisco Systems. He also said it's important for the government to keep the classification level of cyber threat intelligence as low as possible, so that, of course, companies can share that information far and wide. Jen Miller Osborne works at Palo Alto Networks as a deputy director of threat intelligence, and she also testified at that hearing. Her company is a member of the JCDC, and she says... The group can help provide strong cybersecurity guidelines for medium and small businesses who are often under-resourced when it comes to cybersecurity. And I see JCDC as a good way to develop these guidelines and then be able to share them back out with industry because they'll be coming from not only the government background for it, but also, you know, the vendor perspective for it so that we can really have these best practices that we develop cohesively to help give formal, strong guidance to these organizations so they can 
understand what they need to do. All right. So it sounds, Justin, uh, we're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. It sounds like the collaboration fostered by Log4J has brought the kind of vision for how the government and business can work together, I think they envisioned since the founding of Homeland Security. Is this only about Log4J, though? Because there's plenty of other threats out there. There's solar winds still kicking around. So what's next? Are they going to expand this JCDC or what's going to happen? I think they're going to continue steadily expanding JCDC. They've said as much they want to continue growing that and any other public-private venues out there where they can they can really collaborate with industry. But Chris Inglis, the National Cyber Director, also spoke at the Cypher Brief event this week. And he says while the JCDC is working, the government will need to continue to drive resilience efforts forward in terms of actual security improvements to be prepared for the next Log4J. We've done a magnificent job, I think, collectively across the private and public sector responding to Log4J. But if we did that again and again and again, that's not a strategy. That's simply just a response action. Um, We would only lose more slowly if we got that close to perfect. Um, Therefore, we need to figure out how do we actually invest in the resilience of technology, people, and doctrine so that we avoid those events in the future. And what did he mean by some of those resiliency measures? Well, certainly some of the things that you saw last year in the cybersecurity executive order that that we are covering consistently here at Federal News Network, the National Institute of Standards and Technology actually just published software supply chain security guidance for agencies. And that says basically that government buyers should be asking companies for at least a self-attestation that they have followed secure software development principles. So Inglis pointed to, you know, following secure software practices software bills of materials as another mechanism for basically figuring out whether or not you have a vulnerable product in your environment. And, And the Office of Management and Budget and the Department of Homeland Security are actually going to take that new guidance from NIST and develop some proposals for contract language by May. So the executive branch is moving forward on several fronts on on the security of software. Congress is also moving forward with some big pieces of legislation. You know, there's now a cyber omnibus of sorts in the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee over in the Senate, where they have cyber incident reporting requirements combined with new federal agency cyber requirements combined into one big bill. So there's going to be some big requirements coming down the line to kind of combine with these voluntary public-private partnerships that are starting to really coalesce. In some ways, the whole zero trust idea fits into this idea of resiliency. If you have a attack that's actually launched from a log in Log4j, and we haven't seen that actually happen yet, but the presumption under zero trust is that bot that it launches would not have a credential and therefore would be turned away by the network under the zero trust architecture. That also come up at the hearing, and is that your thinking about what people are saying? It didn't explicitly come up at the hearing, but of course you're seeing zero trust become the go-to when it comes to the the next big strategy for cybersecurity. The Office of Management and Budget just published its zero trust security strategy to help agencies and direct agencies to start moving forward with that kind of concept. And as you kind of pointed out there, uh, something Chris Inglis also mentioned, attacks really, the government needs to get to a point where an attack 
needs to take down everyone in order to, to really defeat any one company or agency. So they want to have a, a little bit more of a collective defense moving forward. And I think that you see zero trust security principles marry up with that concept. And the FISMA reform legislation, is that seeming to reflect some of this new thinking and collaboration and resiliency and S-bombs and all the rest of it? Definitely. Zero trust security architecture is actually explicitly called out in several versions of the FISMA reform uh, legislation in both the House and the Senate, and that's moving forward. Uh, software bills of materials actually show up in the House version of the bill. I, I, it may show up in the Senate as well. I'd have to double check. But you're seeing basically the executive branch and Congress agree on the path forward, and now they just have to implement these different things. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.